a Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move, down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop. Come on, who's winning? Towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. You're listening to the original Say the Damn Score podcast, part of the Say the Damn Score podcast network. Here's your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome back to the Say the Damn Score podcast. I'm Logan Anderson, a freelance sportscaster in the Twin Cities metro area, and this podcast is dedicated to the sportscasting industry and sharing the stories of sportscasters from all over the country. Today's guest is Howie Rose, the longtime voice of the New York Mets, former voice of the New York Islanders, and one of the original employees of WFAN, the pioneering all-sports radio station out of New York. And Howie, thanks for coming on the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm well, Logan. How are you? Oh, just another day in paradise. It's cold in Minnesota, but (laughs) what can you do? Yeah, a little nicer here in Florida, but I won't rub it in. (laughs) I make a running joke that I keep moving in the wrong direction. My career keeps taking me farther and farther north. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta turn it south, brother. Someday, someday maybe. But let's start off, let's get right into it. I don't want to waste your time. I appreciate you being a part of this. And it seems like with broadcasters, some people just know from a very young age what they want to do and are able to plan their career from that point. You started a Marv Albert fan club as a teenager, so I'm going to guess you were in that group of people that knew exactly what they wanted to do from a young age. Yeah, and you know, that was when I was 13, but in the abstract, I probably knew as early when I was, as when I was I don't know, four or five years old, uh, there was an old game show that uh, some people might remember called Beat the Clock, and there was a host of it. The MC was a guy named Bud Collier, who later was the host of To Tell the Truth and a lot of other old game shows. But anyway, uh, I used to get a kick out of watching him interview the contestants with this big, thin, long, sort of cylindrical microphone that hung around his neck. And my parents had a Polaroid camera, and the film for that camera was wrapped around a little plastic spool, which very faintly resembled, if you tied a string to it and put it around my neck, as my mom did, the microphone that Bud Collier used to carry around with him on on set. So I would just go up to people in the street or anybody in my family and just randomly start interviewing them with that little spool and string around my neck. So I probably knew as early as then that's what I wanted to do. So when you started the Marv Albert Fan Club, how many – members did you have at its peak? At its peak, I would say we probably had upwards of around 100 because we were able to generate some pretty good publicity thanks to Marv. His broadcast partner, Bill Chadwick, mentioned it on the air now and then. Uh, There was a a sports editor at the old Long Island Press named Mike Lee who gave it a blurb, and I think one or two other newspapers did. And, And so we were able to, along with those that we recruited from school as early as junior high school, uh, amass a pretty good, uh, pretty good club. So, how did you get the attention of Marv when you started that? How, how did that work? <laughs> well, we were sitting there. There were three others and myself, old friends of mine, and we were, you know, we were just killing a late summer's day in 1967. Marv had come off doing his first year 
of full-time Ranger broadcasting. He hadn't even started doing the Knicks yet on a regular basis. I fell in love with hockey and the Rangers and Marv all at the same time and all largely because of Marv. So we were sitting around, and I, I said, you know, let's start a fan club for Marv Albert. And the other guy said, okay. And I said, well, we should probably get his permission. And they said, well, how do we do that? I said, I don't know. Let's call him at WHN and see if we can talk to him. So I rang up the switchboard at 688-1000. I still remember the number. And the switchboard operator answered. And in my adolescent, somewhat high-pitched voice, I said, is it possible to maybe speak to Marv Albert, please? And the next thing I heard was Marv's voice on the other end. Hello. <laughs> and it's funny because Marv, to this day, when he reflects on his career, will tell you that he used to answer the phone the same way Marty Glickman answered the phone. Marty was Marv's idol and mentor. And I'm telling you, without ever having heard that story, I confess to Marv, you know, I used to answer the phone just like you did. Hello. Just like that. And um, I probably to an extent still do to this day. So we had a conversation, and he seemed very flattered, and at the same time offered to help in any way that he can, and he was able to provide glossy pictures of the various uh, athletes in town that we were able to use as perks for joining the fan club, and eventually allowed us to come up to WHN every now and again for a tour, and uh, and as my career began to take shape, or at least my ideals for a career did, um, he would offer tremendous, valuable, constructive criticism of stuff that I taped, you know. So he, he was as good a mentor as, as anybody's ever had. That's a fascinating story. Uh, being a New York guy for your whole life, and especially being a fan of Marv, it's interesting that you chose to not go to Syracuse, but you went to Queens College. What was the decision-making and the story behind that? It's called my report card. Uh, I couldn't have gotten into Syracuse if I took a bus up there. Uh, I just I didn't have the grades for Syracuse. I was not a very ambitious student. I was single-minded and tunnel-visioned, and it might have worked out in my case, but I talked to high school and college kids all the time, and I told them, don't make the same mistake I did. Broaden your background and your interests and take business courses and economics courses and learn about the world out there. I just spent every waking minute aspiring thankfully to do what I've been able to make a living doing for all these years, but it came at a bit of a price, I think. So not to put Queens College down at all because I had a fabulous time there, and um, and I might not have been able to get to where I, I went had I been out of town first. You know, I never worked a day out of my career outside New York, and so I think maybe being in proximity to so many teams in the New York area, Queens College was very much a blessing but I couldn't have gotten into Syracuse with my grades. And with uh, Queens College, again, we've we've talked to 70-plus uh, broadcasters on this show, and we've talked to people from Syracuse, and we've talked to Joe Davis, who made it to as high a level as anyone going to Beloit College in Wisconsin. So you can do it however, uh, however you want to do it. If you make the best of it, it seems that you can make it, and that's what you did. You have to be enterprising. You have to be aggressive. You do have to have that certain tunnel vision, which allows you to absorb anything having to do with broadcasting. And that includes the spoken word, the written word. I say to kids all the time, I, I give them a little what I consider quiz. I say, what's the best way uh, to learn how to speak? And to me, the answer is listen. 
listen to other people in the business, listen to how they present themselves, listen to how they use the language, listen to how they inflect, listen to how they emote. And by the same token, I, I ask them, what's the best way uh, to learn how to write? And I say for the very same reason, read. Read as much as you can and, and, and find writers that you would like to emulate. And sometimes you do wind up initially using them as training wheels so that I know my earliest tapes probably sounded like a terrible imitation of Marv Albert. But that's okay because you find your sea legs along the way and you develop your own style. And so I think it's very important to keep those two main things uh, under consideration about reading and writing and, and listening and um, and that can really set you on a good path. I'm also a believer that that reading is important not only for writing but for being able to build the vocabulary and to speak. And uh, what is in your personal library? What are you reading? Are you reading stuff to educate yourself, or are you just reading fiction well, for fun? Well, you know what? I try not to read sports books very often. I do. I mean, as much because I should, as much as I want to. But I was the kid that would hear from the teachers way back in school, can you broaden your interests and read something other than a sports book? So I read um, I read the occasional biography. I am going to start Jane Levy's book on Babe Ruth because I've heard nothing but fabulous things about it. And she did such a remarkably wonderful job on her Sandy Koufax and Mickey Mantle books that just because she wrote it, I'm going to read it. But I have an author who's become a personal favorite of mine. He's based in Chicago. His name is Ronald H. Balson, and he writes a lot of historical fiction, which is what I probably enjoy to read most. And again, I'll read uh, a lot of nonfiction. I'm right now, uh, after finishing Ronald Balson's latest book, uh, which is called The Girl from Berlin, I'm reading uh, Michael Connolly's latest novel. I like his crime stuff a lot. Um, but, you know, I, I, I try not to read more than a couple of sports books a year. So I want to go backwards to something you said about being your entire career in the New York market. A lot of people get kind of the, the low-pressure reps in small towns and in other places. Being in the New York market, where were you able to kind of experiment and try things and fail without – dire consequences uh, while being in the biggest media market, one of the most unforgiving media markets in the country? Well, I think there was some serendipity involved. You know, you have to be lucky, too. And because I'd known Marv Albert, I had also been sort of peripherally familiar with a guy named Bob Meyer. Bullet Bob Meyer was the track announcer at Yonkers Raceway, but was Marv's longtime statistician for Knicks and Rangers, and I think probably Giants broadcast, too, on radio. And in 1975, they were starting something in New York called Sports Phone, which I mean, people can't even believe that this used to be a thing. But long before the Internet and cell phones and the computers, you could dial a phone number and hear a 60-second pre-recorded sportscast. And during game hours at night, it was obviously very score-intensive. So it really catered largely to the gamblers, but it also taught you how to speak somewhat succinctly because you only had, I think, 58 and a half seconds before the tape would kick off that you had to work with. 
And so, you know, from that, because I was in New York, I was able to make connections and eventually get a job working, ironically, at WHN, which was Marv's alma mater, and that's where I started my radio career. And it's the classic case, really, of one thing leading to another and eventually creating enough of a a profile and recognition for myself within the market that I was able to basically enjoy a leap of faith on behalf of a couple of people along the way who felt that they would allow me to take a crack at doing play-by-play, even though I didn't really have any chops. I hadn't been in the minor leagues learning my trade. I learned how to do hockey play-by-play from uh, my blue seat at Madison Square Garden when I had Rangers season tickets, when the Islanders came into the National Hockey League, from sitting in the press box and finding an area where it was sparsely populated and not bothering anyone and doing play-by-play and being able to do interviews in the locker room afterwards and really learning the craft, even as a college student, that, uh, you know, I was able to get people to take a chance. And um, thankfully, what is it, 1975, it's going on 44 years in the business, it's worked out. Tell us more about the uh, the sports phone. That's an interesting concept. I'm on the the old side of the millennial generation, so I, I do have a hard time understanding exactly what yeah. that is. How did you get there and explain the process of it? Well, I got there, and I should have filled in the blanks earlier, because Marv knew Bob Meyer when they were conceptualizing sports phone. Uh, the people who, I guess, were the investors in it said um, to Bob, why don't you see if you could find some college-age kids who want to have or might have a future in broadcasting. And it's entry level. I think if I remember right, the pay was $5 an hour in 1975, which felt like a fortune to me and see if they might either A, be interested and or qualified. And so Marv gave my name to Bob, and I walked into the office at WQMC, the Queens College radio station, one day, and there was a message to call Bob Meyer, which I did. Went in for the interview, and I was hired initially as the, let's see, it was the weekend evening announcer. And so I think my shift was something like six to closing, which would be after the last West Coast game. And, uh, you know, as I say, during event-intensive hours, we might have updated those tapes every three, four, five minutes, whatever they were. So it was uh, it was pretty intense for a while. But, as I say, it taught you to speak succinctly and clearly and quickly and, um, and don't get a score wrong or you were going to get some gamblers after you, and those were not the kind of folks you wanted uh, trailing you, you know. So it was something that clicked with a lot of people, not only gamblers, but people who were at work and during off hours for sports, meaning, you know, say a weekday afternoon, they hear a commentary on what was going on in sports along with the news of the day. And hopefully it was humorous and entertaining every now and then, but it was a good, uh, it was a good training ground. Do you have any specific stories of getting a score wrong and having somebody upset coming at you? No, thankfully. Uh, not personally, but I do know that there are a couple of guys who uh, would draw the rat. And you know what? I, I say no only because there's nothing that sticks out. It's imminently possible that I blew a score and was told quickly, hey, you better change that. But there were no repercussions that I can recall. I'm sure I probably did botch one or two and quickly made good on it. But it wasn't the environment where you wanted to let a bad score out there linger for very long. I want to take a quick moment to talk about STAA. That's the Sports Talent Agency of America, and it's a 
organization that is dedicated to helping sportscasters improve their sportscasting craft, improve their job market strategy, and help you climb the ladder in the sportscasting business. And most of you guys have probably heard of STAA. Maybe you just lurk on the message boards and you look at the job postings and you read the blog, all the free resources that John gives, and you haven't made the jump to actually uh, subscribe and become a member. Well, I want to tell you, I did the same thing for a long time. Probably about a full year up until about 2014 when I finally signed up. I would look at the message boards, I would see what jobs are there, I would apply for them, and I never got anywhere, and I would always wonder why. And after meeting John Chelesnik at his one-day ticket to Sportscasting Success Seminar in North Carolina, he went over some of the stuff that is included with his membership that, that you don't get without it. He helped me write cover letters that were specific for each employer and he kind of told me what to say and guided me through that process. He helped me to redesign my resume so it was easier to scan. There's so many little things that you don't know you're not doing them until someone tells you you're not doing them. And John Chelesnik and STAA have been immensely helpful in me not only improving my job market strategy but helping to become a better sportscaster through the group critiques offered to members and through the watching the member makeovers and using his personal expertise and asking him questions and using him as a resource it is a hundred percent worth it and right now if you sign up for STAA and you use the say the damn score affiliate site that is staatalent.com slash say the damn score I get a small kickback that I can use to help pay for site hosting and servers and the URL and new equipment for the Save the Damn Score mobile podcasting studio. And also, you will get a free ebook written by John Chelesnik, the CEO of STAA, called The Smart Way to Get a Sportscasting Job A Complete Guide to Cold Contacting Employers. It's an ebook dedicated to helping you learn the finer points of cold contacting employers. It's not always an easy thing to do, and his ebook will help you through the process of doing so effectively. Anyway, again, please sign up for STAA if you've been thinking about it and needed a little push to jump all the way in. I really highly recommend it. Use stwatalent.com slash say the damn score. Now back to the show. So I've talked to a couple other people who have been in one market for their entire careers, and it seems like most of them at some point have a decision to either stay there where they are and hope that they can advance up through uh, the company or through the market they're in or leave to move up. Did you ever have a moment where you thought about leaving or were considering leaving? I probably should have. What, what happened was when I started working at WHN, it was in 1977, I became the sports director. It was a 50,000-watt New York radio station that had a huge emotional attachment to my heart because that's where Marv was when I started the fan club, and that's where I used to hear the Rangers and Knicks and earlier the Mets and, and the Yankees. And so that station meant a lot to me. And 
problem was they were a country music station, and I was kind of the last of a of a generation where music stations had um, thriving news departments and a sports director. But you know, for most of the years I was there, we didn't have any sports properties. So being the sports director of a country music station was somewhat like being the captain of a rowboat. I mean, there was really nothing much for me to do except morning sports reports and cover games at night, and that was great. And I was making pretty nice money for a 23-year-old kid right out of school. But I got a little lazy, and I stayed there probably longer than I should have. Once I'd been there for a few years, I, I, I probably should have thought, you know, if you really want to do play-by-play, which was always my ideal scenario, then I probably should have tried to get a minor league hockey or baseball job. And I actually did one um, one year, I guess it was 1983, I went to the NHL uh, meetings up in Montreal in June looking for a play-by-play job. I would have left then, and I probably should have because uh, later that year that radio station was in the midst of being sold, and they eliminated my position. Luckily, I was able to find freelance work, which more than made up for the salary I lost. But again, that kept me in New York, and I uh, was actually working at stations as a freelancer uh, that had more of a, a news, um, was strictly a news station, in one case, WCBS Radio, where ironically we're going back to as uh, the new flagship for the Mets. But, um, you know, and, and again, I was able to sort of segue whatever recognition I was building in the market into doing first talk and then play-by-play. But in retrospect, I should have I should have looked to leave a little earlier than 1983. So when you, were, when you moved from WHN to a freelance position, what games were you covering and what was the next break on the road in your career? I'd... I kind of have them all written down here, but my timeline's not entirely clear because I wrote this down a week ago. Uh, what okay. was the next well, break after I, that? I left, as I mentioned, WHN at the end of 1983, and very quickly I was fortunate um, to hook up, and Marv had a little to do with it, more than a little to do with it. He had a lot to do with it initially in hooking me up with some freelance work in the NBC radio network, but then also a contact of mine named uh, Ed Ingalls, the longtime sports director at WCBS Radio, uh, was a guy that I called to tell him I was available, and, and and frankly, he moved pretty quickly to bring me in as pretty much a regular weekend and fill-in guy. So I got a, a great deal of work at WCBS Radio from 1984 to 1987, the three years I basically freelanced. And during that time, and again, this is you know this was all because of Marv. Um, he was working on as his schedule evolved to where he was missing games because he had conflicts. He was able to work on the powers that be at Madison Square Garden Network to give me a shot to fill in for him on radio, which I did for the first time on January 24th, 1985, for a game between the Rangers and the Detroit Red Wings. And, I mean, I've called the Rangers win the Stanley Cup, and I've called the Mets in the World Series. I've called the Mets win the pennant. Um, I don't know that I've ever had one singular thrill in the business uh, as as large as the one that I had on that January night in 1985 when I sat in that seat, Marv's seat at Madison Square Garden, to do my first Ranger game. That felt as though um, I'd made it, even though it was, you know, at least supposed to be a one-off. Um, just the fact that I was in that seat doing that game 
was the most remarkable feeling I've ever had as a broadcaster. It sort of validated everything that I dreamt about from the time that I first wore that Polaroid film spool around my neck. It was the most incredible feeling that I'd ever had. So did you feel like you nailed that broadcast? Were you nervous beforehand? Because I know generally as broadcasters, people will ask if we're nervous, and we're really not because we've done this hundreds of times, but that's a big deal. I'm one who generally doesn't get nervous because nervous implies doubt. Nervousness implies doubt. And I'm probably the worst athlete that the world has ever created. And so if there's a chance for me to mess up, whether it's on a golf course or when I was playing ball at any other any other sport, any other level, I would stink the joint out, and if there was a chance to blow it, I would choke. That's just me. But when it comes to broadcasting, when I went into that booth that night, I felt like I was going to nail it. And the only hiccup that I had, and I thought it might have been a potentially damaging one, was on the first Ranger goal of that game. I was working with Bill Chadwick, the longtime Ranger color man, and through a variety of circumstances, he was filling in that night as well. He had been retired, but they moved him in to work with me that night because I think uh, Phil Esposito used to have something called the Masters of Hockey, uh, which was to raise money for old-timers. And uh, John Davidson, who was the Rangers' TV analyst, I think, at the time, was away doing that. So Sal Messina, who, uh, Sal Messina the regular radio uh, color analyst, moved up to do TV. So they had a vacancy for the analyst spot, and they, they moved Bill in there. And anyway, Bill was a Hall of Fame referee, and he was telling uh, an anecdote that ran a little long about how he developed the hand signals for referees. And I just, he, he mentioned that he was the guy who had developed that right after a penalty, and I just felt I needed to sort of acknowledge that. And so he talked a little long, and when I got it back, I just said one sentence to acknowledge it, and wouldn't you believe it, boom, the puck was in the net. And you could hear the crowd because it was the Rangers who scored, so, you know, it was pretty embarrassing. And I thought, well, that's it, I'm done. But the rest of the game, I guess, went well enough so that they brought me back. But I thought that might have precluded me from ever getting another chance. Well, obviously, there were many more chances. I want to jump forward to, I think it was the 93-94 season when the Mm -hmm. Rangers won the Stanley Cup. And I don't think you did their games full-time, but you filled in a lot. And you have the famous... Yeah, we used to joke about that. I did probably 55 or 60 of the 82 games, but that's what Marv's schedule had become in those days. And... you had that famous Matteau, Matteau, Matteau call, which obviously you nailed. And I just wanted to see if you can reflect knowing now how how important that was going to be and how you set up that particular call. Well, you know, you don't really set it up because you're in sudden death overtime and the season's on the line. And if you've got something in the in, in the can that you think is going to be applicable when a goal is scored under those circumstances, you're not doing your job, you know. But what I had thought about was the Rangers led one to nothing through most of the last two periods. And as the clock wound into the final minute, I thought to myself, how do I want to play this now if they actually do hold on? And my plan was at the final buzzer, I was just going to say, and there's one more hill to climb. Let the crowd carry it for about five seconds, which is really all you can afford to do on radio, and then resume punctuating the moment. And 
What happened was, of course, Valerie Zelopukit of the Devils scored with 7.7 seconds to go in regulation, and that threw any of that stuff out the window. And so from that point on, it was just freewheeling. And when Matteau did score the goal in the midst of my exaltation, I had that line, there's one more hill to climb, pop back into my head, and so it was incorporated into everything else that I was bellowing in the moment. But I'm just amazed and flattered at how that call has been embraced over nearly 25 years now. And there's rarely a day that goes by when I'm broadcasting a game in New York where somebody who recognizes me doesn't either directly come up to me and bring it up or just from a distance yell, Matteau, Matteau. And given what that call meant and that it was, you know, as important a goal really as the New York Rangers have ever scored in their 90-plus year history, I'm pretty flattered to be associated with it. So with hockey in particular, there's some unique challenges in big situations like that. Sometimes it's just really hard to see uh, who was the last person to to touch the puck before it goes in the net. It can deflect off of any given sure. person through a lot of traffic. Were you confident that you had the right person there the entire time? Well, I was until Sal almost gave me a heart attack because we were fortunate in that our vantage point on radio was very low down, which is not ordinarily an ideal situation, but the construct of Madison Square Garden back then didn't provide a whole lot of real good options. So our location was right atop what a lot of people nowadays refer to as the old Willis-Reed Tunnel, which is where the players would come out from their locker rooms onto the ice or the court from, and that's where Willis made his uh, dramatic entrance during warm-ups uh, before Game 7 of the 1970 NBA Finals against the Lakers. Um, so because we were that low down, I thought I had the ideal vantage point because your concentration is so acute, so intense in a situation like that. My eyes were magnetically attached to the puck. So I just followed it on that toe stick all the way around the net, saw him wrap the puck around, and um, I thought from obviously the very first Matteau that that was his goal. Well, now, after I finally stopped yelling and screaming and Sal starts breaking down the replay, he sees that Essa Tikkanen had crashed the net, and he's thinking maybe Tikkanen got that goal. And I'll never forget Sal saying, and Sal almost was always right. I mean, his instincts are just great, always were. And he said at one point, I don't know if that's Matteau's goal. That might have been Tikkanen. And at that point, I thought, oh, my goodness. Now I'm going to have to go into a studio and overdub Tikkanen, Tikkanen, Tikkanen. <laughs> you know, obviously that didn't have to happen. But for a couple of seconds, I, I thought it might. But thankfully, it uh, proved to have been Matteau's goal. And, and that call stands unchanged. Let's just pretend hypothetically that you didn't have a great vantage point and you couldn't see exactly who scored a huge goal like that, how would you handle that situation? Instinctively. And so I can't give you a verbatim answer on what the call would have been. Sometimes you generalize and you say they score, and that probably, you know, had I been in a situation where I didn't have a great vantage point, uh, would have been something akin to what I would have said very much the way the TV guys did it because their location was way up and way back. Uh, we had a much better location for making calls like that than they did. So maybe Sam's call wasn't quite as 
on target in the moment, but it couldn't have been. It wasn't Sam's fault. It couldn't have been because they just could not have had the same view of it that we did. I was just very fortunate to have that vantage point. Now, I will say that in that series against New Jersey, the location at the old Meadowlands Arena where we were stuck way up and way back was the worst location in hockey then. Unfortunately, they've all gone that route now with all these new arenas. But it was much more challenging to make calls like that for me during games three, four, and six, the ones played in New Jersey, than the ones that were played at Madison Square Garden for precisely that reason. So the next couple years were big for you. Uh, you were able to parlay that big fill-in year to both the TV job with the Mets and a year later the full-time play-by-play job for the Islanders. Let's start with the Mets. What was the story on how you were able to land that position? Well, the big thing with the Mets, of course, was when they won the 1986 World Series. Uh, in the aftermath, the radio station, which was WHN at the time, because uh, they had gotten the Mets rights, in 1983, ironically, just as they were eliminating my position, which to me made no sense. You finally get a team, and then you blow out whatever sports department you had, but that was immaterial by 1986. Um, they decided during that off season that they wanted to capitalize on the Mets' success and create a show which was given a trial balloon during the postseason as a way to generate more revenue that they were going to call Mets Extra, an extensive, extended, really, pre- and post-game show, which would involve listener phone calls and, and a whole lot of other uh, things that were Mets-centric. And I just thought, as soon as word started to get to me that that job was going to become available, that I'd be the perfect candidate for it. Uh, it also involved doing sports in the morning, and by then, they were able to put a line into my apartment where I was living in Great Neck. I just was just about to get married at that time. And so the opportunity came at the perfect time. And I just knew that if I could, if I can get that job, that'd be a turning point in my career. And not only was it that, but WHN morphed into the nation's first all-sports radio station, WFAN, later that 1987 season. So, you know, getting that job doing Mets pre and post is what gave me a real presence with the Mets. Um, I did a manager show before every game with Davey Johnson, um, which I will say is probably, and I've heard this from other people, so it's just not me sort of boasting because I generally don't, but I think you'd be hard-pressed to find another manager show in the history of broadcast baseball that was given the latitude that we were to discuss things about the club in depth. You had to have a manager who was willing to answer the questions, and Davey was. You had to have a host whose mindset was, I can't play it any differently than the beat writers. I'd get laughed out of town if I tried. And so it was a very journalistically sound show, and that brought a lot of attention my way. And, uh, you know, even though the ball club wasn't always happy with it, we had our differences from time to time. Eventually we patched those differences up, and and so I started to do radio fill-in play-by-play during the time I was the pre- and post-game host, and one thing led to another, as it so often does. So your first position with the Mets after pre- and post was to do the TV broadcast. Most people go from radio to TV. You went from TV to radio. What was the decision behind that? You mean when I went 
from it's a mess. Uh, if I read you're talking about when I went back to radio in 2000, what was it, four? I guess. Correct. Didn't you start as the TV full-time TV host? Well, yeah. Well, you know, full-time not really. What I was doing was first I was filling in on radio, doing play-by-play, and then um, I moved to Sports Channel, which was later absorbed by Madison Square Garden Network. But I was hired first by Sports Channel to do the Islanders. I actually was about to leave the Mets somewhat. My deal with Sports Channel called for me to do all the Islander games, and then it was left very open-ended where I was also going to do something like 60, I think it was called in the contract, other events. But there was a clear understanding that there would be a lot of Mets work in there. So I was you know, leaving the Mets maybe on an official basis, but really I was always going to stay connected to them. But, but anyhow, what happened was, uh, Sports Channel in the middle of my first year where the Islanders came to me and um, there was an opening that developed on the Mets side and they said, how'd you like to do that too? So I talked to my wife. It was going to involve a lot more travel and um, by that time I had two young children and um, we decided to give it a go and, and I did that for I guess the seasons 1996 through 2003 and through a lot of it, and, and it was only the, it was 75 games on cable and then 100 games on cable and then some extra work when Gary Thorne had conflicts on over the air. So at my peak, I was doing about 110 games uh, on television. But all along the way, I had heard from some people in Mets management that when Bob Murphy retires, they thought that would be a good spot for me long term, you know, to become Murph's replacement. And I had mixed feelings about it because, A, it was going from TV to radio. It was doing every single game plus every single hockey game, which I really thought was going to be unmanageable. But these opportunities don't come around very often. And um, I decided to go for it. And so I've been doing that since 2004. Became the lead guy in 2006 when Gary Cohen went to the newly formed SNY. And um, and I gave up the Islanders after the season of 2015-16 to try to have a little bit of a life. <laughs> well, that seems like a good point to backtrack. And tell us the story of how you got hooked up with the Islanders gig. Well, I lived at the time in Jericho on Long Island, which was about a 15-minute drive from my house to the Coliseum. Driving to Madison Square Garden from Long Island, if you've ever driven through Midtown Manhattan, you know it could take weeks. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I, I always wanted to stay with the Rangers. I mean, I'd never aspired to leave the Rangers necessarily. But there were times when I would drive to the Coliseum to do a Ranger Islander game where I thought, wow, you know, boy, imagine, imagine this. Imagine if that job ever came available, working 15 minutes from home. And um, you know, again, when I was with the Rangers, it was still technically as a fill-in guy, even though I was doing most of the games. And I was at the point in my career where I, I needed, I needed a number one job. I mean, I needed to really establish myself once and for all as somebody's main voice. Uh, even though a lot of people considered me the main Rangers radio voice anyway by that time, but. Uh, still, it was too good an opportunity to pass up. There was an opening. Jiggs McDonald was leaving. My agent put an inquiry in. They had a new executive producer at Sports Channel who came from MSG and was familiar with and fond of my work, and that set it into motion. So that was uh, a very difficult transition. Not emotionally. You know, we're not many ways different than than players. You know, you do change teams from time to time. And... um And so that part of it wasn't hard at all, but 
it was a rough couple of years because the Islanders were really bad. They made a, a terrible decision to change their iconic logo and uniform into something that was not received well. And to top it all off, shortly after the Rangers win the Stanley Cup, you know, here I come from the Rangers uh, to be the voice of the Islanders. And uh, it, it, it didn't sit well with Islanders fans for a couple of years. But I'm really happy to say that, that gradually I think we um, – we kind of fell in love with each other, you know, and uh, and I, I'm, I'm very warmly received by Islander fans now, and that means a lot to me. Both the Islanders and the Mets for many years had, to be nice, we'll say, some subpar teams. You just mentioned the Islanders when you got there weren't especially good. How do you handle covering a team that's not very good day in and day out while still keeping it interesting and keeping a listener involved? It's what we do. You have to love what you do, and I do. I still get, even all these years later, a real buzz when, you know, that umpire yells play ball or when the referee was getting ready to drop the puck because every single game presents potentially a unique and perhaps career-defining opportunity. I didn't know Stefan Matteau was going to score the goal that he did that night of May 27, 1994. I mean, that had a pretty big effect on my life, never mind my career, and obviously that was going to be a big game, so you knew something special could happen. But when I was driving to, to City Field on June 1st, 2012, the Mets were going to play the St. Louis Cardinals, and the only real story building around that game was that Carlos Beltran, who was with the Cardinals that year, was going to play his first game against the Mets since being traded by the Mets to the Giants the year before. So that was that was what was up that June 1st. I didn't know that Johan Santana would pitch a no-hitter that night. So even in the midst of a losing season, as 2012 was for the Mets, that's one of the most unforgettable nights of my career. And you have to be prepared for something like that to happen every single time you step behind the microphone. might be the night somebody scores five goals. might be the night somebody pitches a no-hitter. And you have to approach it with that sort of um, genuine enthusiasm. And I'm just lucky that all these years into it, that enthusiasm that, that I have is, is very much genuine, regardless of how the team's doing. What did you do during the the lockout year? You know, certainly, the I don't want season to... lockout. Yes. Yeah, that was oh four oh five, and um, man, I was miserable. Um, I mean, for one thing, it was a culture shock to have an off season because I never had, and for another, I just missed the games so terribly. You know, um, anything that was connected to hockey or anyone connected with hockey that I had a chance to visit with during that winter, uh, I eagerly anticipated and thoroughly enjoyed. Whether it was having lunch with some of the Islander personnel or uh, going into the city and maybe reconnecting with some of my Ranger buddies, you know, it was just, um, there was a big gap, a real hole for me. And by the same token, uh, we weren't getting paid. So there was a a pretty deep void to fill there, too, when you're raising a couple of children. Um, But at the same time, it did afford me an opportunity to get down to Florida a little bit which is where I make my home during the baseball off season now and really kind of fall in love with the idea of not suffering through winter uh, in the Northeast if I didn't have to at some point in my career. And so if I have to look back at 04, 05 as, 
anything that I can take something positive from, it would be that it it really sort of um, ignited that passion to uh, actually see how the other half live, which is with an off season. Did you do anything extra or different to try to make up for that uh, income, that loss of income? A uh, couple talk shows on WFAN, as I recall, and not a whole lot other than that. I didn't have the energy to run around the country and try to do any minor league hockey games if those opportunities even presented itself. I mean, I did really enjoy the opportunity. I know people hear it all the time, and it sounds cliche, but trust me, if you're in the situation where you're away on a lot of family members' birthdays and anniversaries and um, school plays or uh, momentous occasions for them, you really cherish the extra time you get to spend when you're not used to it. So to that end, um, it wasn't a complete loss at all, and, and there are some very uh, you know, enduring memories that I have from them. That seems like a good transition to go into where, why you decided to leave and just focus on the Mets. I couldn't do it anymore. I just couldn't do both. Uh, it was at a point where, let's see, I was past my 60th birthday, for sure. I guess I was 62 when I did my last hockey game, which I hope is not my last hockey game, my last Islander game. I'd still like to do another game or two somewhere as a fill-in down the road for whomever, wherever, but it's got to be the right situation. Um, but uh, I just couldn't do it. I couldn't take the travel. I didn't really need to. My I have two daughters, and my uh, youngest one was getting out of college in 15, so we'd gotten them through school. And we got to a position where I just looked in the mirror and said, I need to have a life. I mean, I, 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 at the very least, I owe that to my wife. You know, if you really stop and think, and I'm not complaining because I've had a wonderful career and I don't want anybody to think that, you know, I have any regrets at all, but I'm sure that if you ask my wife, she'll tell you that she regrets all those nights alone when I'm on the road or even when the Mets are playing at home on a beautiful summer's night, on a Saturday night when maybe a lot of people are going out or, you know, a barbecue on a Sunday afternoon when I'm at the ballpark or on the road. Um, that, that's a tough life to, to throw in the lap of anyone. And no woman could handle it better than my wife has, God bless her. But uh, it, w- it was time to, to give something back to her too, even if that was just me. <laughs> but it was still a point in my life where I just had I'd had enough. I couldn't do it anymore. I've talked with quite a few people about this, but most answers are different. And I've been married now for about a year and a half. And <laughs> I ask, what what are some of the keys to keeping a healthy marriage with the crazy broadcasting schedule? Maybe it's being on the road a lot, <laughs> you know. And then, you know, you get back together for an extended period, as we have in find you're almost getting to know each other all over again, but in, only in the most positive way. I'm just very blessed. I didn't get married when I was too young. I think I was 33 when I got married, and I, you know, I'd been around a little bit to where I knew who was going to be right for me, and, and my wife Barbara certainly is. And uh, I, there's a benefit in that. There's, I, I really believe there's a benefit to waiting before you get married so that, um, A, you're more mature and capable of handling situations that come up in our business that might require some uh, deft stick handling, if you will. And um, at the same time, you're, just, um, you're mature enough to, to know what you work best, best with and who you work best with. And so um, I think the best way to maintain the marriage and the relationship is to make sure it's the right one. 
So were you with WFAN when they started right after they yeah. made that transition? Absolutely, on that day. What was I've that been, in like? fact, it was one of the greatest wedding presents, maybe the greatest wedding present that I got, because the general manager of the station, which at the time had been WHN, Rick Dames, who's a great guy, by the way, um, big hockey fan, too. I think he's selling real estate out in Las Vegas now. Um, but I used to enjoy catching up with him on the road back in the day after he left WHN. Uh, because he wasn't held over at FAM. But anyway, Rick was the uh, general manager at HN. I had invited him to my wedding. He couldn't make it. But before I left to get married uh, on that, that evening in April, he called me up to say that WHN was going to – and, the, you know, the word had been out that there was a strong possibility it was going to happen. But he wanted me to know on my wedding day um, with – you know, an official sanctioned blessing that not only was WHN going to become WFAN, an all-sports radio station, but that I was going to be retained not only as the host of Mets Extra, the pre- and post-game show, but also as the regular 7 to midnight talk show host, which made my career. I mean, that, that's what really, really gave me um, the recognition that I had sought years and years before as a means towards evolving into a play-by-play guy down the road and maybe more of a personality without having to leave town. That's really what did it, WHN becoming WFAN and my being held over as a uh, 7 to midnight talk host. So I've talked to a couple people who have been involved from the early parts of that station, and it sounds like it was just a wild day-to-day experience, not knowing if what at that point was an untested format was going to work. What are your recollections of the early years there? Two things, really, that made WFAN what it's become. The first big step was taken by Jeff Smullyan, who was just a wonderful person, uh, really one of the great people I've ever met in the business. It was his vision. It was his baby. And uh, despite the fact that internally he was getting a lot of tugs from uh, – his board people over at MS Broadcasting to pull the plug on WFAN. He believed in it. What he did was he was able to buy the NBC-owned and operated stations in New York, WNBC Radio, which was on 660. WFAN had been on 1050 AM, and he bought the FM station as well. And Anyway, in doing that, he was able to flip the format. And so not only did he take FAN down the dial from 1050 to 660, but he inherited WNBC's programming, which included Don Imus. And so now this all-sports radio station was going to have a little different wrinkle to it. It was also going to have the incredibly successful Imus in the Morning program. Now, to Imus's everlasting, uh, I just respect him so much for this, as irascible as he could be, uh, he embraced so fully not only the format, and he would incorporate sports into his show way more than he ever did before, but he helped build some of the personalities on that station into the huge successes that they became, most notably Mike Francesa and Chris Russo, Mike and the Mad Dog. So I miss Mike and the Mad Dog were the biggest reasons in conjunction with that signal change, the frequency change that Jeff Smullyan initiated, why WFAN finally took off. And you also had the Mets, who were extremely successful back then. They'd won the World Series in 1986. They won 100 games in the division in 88, lost the seven-game league championship series to the Dodgers. Uh, but 
they were just the biggest thing in New York in those days. And, and between all of those properties, that's when FAN really set sail. Give us a Mike and the Mad Dog story. Well, let's see which ones I can clean up for you. <laughs> it's uh, a podcast. They don't have to be clean. I don't, you know what? I don't know that there's one story necessarily because you've probably heard most of the basics. You know, they could be at each other's throats on and off the air, but they just made it work. They had a great chemistry. Um, Chris, you know, has uh, one of the most unusual deliveries and voices in broadcasting. And I'll never forget walking into um, the WFAN uh, sales suite that they had at Shea Stadium back in the day. And Chris was in there with his dad. And Chris says to me, Hey, how you doing, buddy? Come here, man. I'd like you to meet my dad. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, now I get to hear what, like, a normal Russo sounds like. He goes, uh, Howie Rose is my dad, Tony Russo. And I'm thinking, all right, now this is going to sound probably normal, right? And Tony goes, hey, hey, Howie, how you doing, buddy? He sounded just like Chris. I couldn't believe it. And his mom, God bless her, she speaks the Queen's English. I think she's British, in fact. But it, it was zany. I mean, you couldn't believe this was real. This was a sitcom. But that was the Chris side of it. And Mike, you know, I mean, Mike's Mike. You know, he uh, kind of came on quietly at the beginning. He obviously had this tremendous knowledge of not only all the basic sports, but, you know, back in those days, College basketball, and certainly in New York, college football, which to this day is not a big deal. But Mike was very well versed in the college sports as well. And so his ability to, to bring that to the air along with his, you know, unique style, uh, which was so New York. I think that was the big thing about Mike is that, uh, you know, whether you, you love him or not, um, he really epitomizes a lot of what a New Yorker uh, sounds like. And so there was this almost immediate ability for a listener to relate to Mike in that fashion and to Chris because he has just, a, you know, this endearing uh, personality. So, you know, I don't know that I've got that many anecdotes that I could tell about them personally without breaking a confidence or two along the way, but I can tell you that that's what made them successful and in so doing made WFAN what it became. What's the biggest difference between sports talk now and when you guys started the format in the 80s? Well, I just think right now there is, and it always existed to an extent, but now we've become so shrill. And I'm not putting it on any one radio station. I think it has to do with social media. Everybody's a columnist now. You know, everybody's a talk show host now. And because anyone can be based on, the platforms available via social media, um, I, I think that there's very little that is left on the table anymore. Um, people are more than ever before uh, willing to blurt anything out, whether it's responsible or not, whether it's accusatory with foundation or not, whether there's attribution involved or not. Uh, I think that we've become angry societally way more than we were before and so naturally that spills over into sports as well it's 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 evolution it's it's who we are it's what we've become i don't have to like it 
I don't have to necessarily agree with it, but I'm probably as guilty of it as anyone in, in private moments. And I think that we represent what used to be private moments on the air so much more readily now than we did before because of the impact of social media. I think it's conflated a lot of what used to be the standards that broadcasters had to uphold. They have really taken a tumble, those standards have over the years, and that is something I'm not happy about. I'm not happy that that language has become a forgotten art. I'm not happy that profanity finds its way almost into the mainstream now, and not only uh, on social media, but on broadcast and in print. And um, as I say, it's, it's as John Lennon said, evolution, and it might be devolution to a lot of people, but it's, it's where we are, and it's a battle you can't really fight and expect to win, at least unless somebody has a better formula than I've seen. So David Halberstam was the one who kind of facilitated uh, being able to get in touch with you to come on this podcast, and he had a couple questions for me to ask you. That I well, can I say you. something first about sure, David? Certainly. Because David actually is in part responsible for jump-starting my career. Because at Queens College, when I was a student there in the 1970s, Queens had a nationally ranked women's basketball team. This is just after Title IX and before the NCAA really dug into it and the scholarships were equal now and, and the big schools eventually became basketball powers on the women's side as well. But back in the 70s, in the early and mid-70s, schools like Queens College, Immaculata College, Delta State University, which don't have big-time programs, well, they were huge in women's basketball. And so Queens and Immaculata played the first ever women's intercollegiate game, basketball game, in Madison Square Garden in February of 1975. I was the sports director and the basketball play-by-play announcer for Queens College men's and women's basketball, and uh, I was able to convince Dave to allow me to do uh, the game in tandem with his City University of New York uh, men's basketball announcer, a guy named Barry Kipnis, who was a very promising announcer, who simply took a different career path. Um, but thanks to David, I broadcast the first half of that game, and that was the first time that I was able to do a game that anybody could tune into on the municipal station in New York, WNYC. So I'm forever indebted to David. And he gave me just a couple questions to ask you. Most of them I kind of weaved in throughout the, the interview, but which of the founding announcers of the Mets, Lindsey Nelson or Bob Murphy, had a greater impact on your style? Wow, that's a great question because I've never tried to sort of divvy it up. But, you know, I worked with Murph. I never worked with Lindsay. And in terms of my style, I'm not going to cop out. I'm simply going to, and I don't know that I can count them and say that Murph had more or Lindsay had more. I'll give you a couple of areas real quickly that I think I took from both of them. From Murph. I like to think that at the end of every Mets game that I heard Bob Murphy do on radio or television, he had this incredible capacity for even in the worst of seasons, when he signed off that broadcast, he somehow had you feeling pretty good about the Mets, if only because you were looking ahead to their next game. He just had this incredible manner of positivity and um, and and joy that he brought to a broadcast that I hope I've taken something from. 
so that if at the end of the day someone listening to a Mets game, even a, a game where they lost, can find something to feel good about from that broadcast, that would be my tribute to Murph. That and the fact that he, even though he was such a, a, a Mets guy, was so journalistically sound. The most devastating regular season home run ever hit against the New York Mets was hit by Terry Pendleton in September of 1987 in the ninth inning of a game between the Mets and the Cardinals who were locked up in a tight pennant race. Murph made that call sound every bit the potential turning point to the season moment that it was. You didn't have to strain to hear him. You didn't simply, you know, listen to him drop octaves because he was not getting excited necessarily about the Pendleton call. No Met person could have been excited by the result, but you knew as a broadcaster that this was huge and potentially transformative. That's the Murph that I don't think has ever gotten enough credit. So that's what I hope I've taken from Bob Murphy. From Lindsay, I've always felt that you could sort of tell what time of game it was. Now, I'm not talking about who was winning or losing. You could tell what part of the game you were listening or watching to by the inflection in Lindsay's voice. By that, I mean the first inning always sounded different from the fifth, and in so doing sounded much different from the ninth. And he just had a way of capturing drama and building that drama, particularly on radio, that is so rare in this business. Um, and there are a couple of things that he's that he's used as punctuation over the years that um, I think I've, I've taken as a tribute from him. Um, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, the Mets would score a big run and – Lindsay would say, and the Mets are leading by a score of three to two or something like that. And I've borrowed that inflection from time to time, knowingly as a tribute to him. So I can't say it was a contest where I took more from Murph than I did from Lindsay. But I think, that you know, in some ways I've been able to pay tribute to them both. David also asked, a couple years ago you had to uh, go through an emergency landing on an airplane to get some medical care. Oh, yeah. Asked, what's the story behind that, and how are you doing now? Oh, fine. I mean, it was just one of those fluky things. We were going from New York to Los Angeles, and I'm, I'm proud to say that I could share something that Vin Scully once had, because Vin had one of those a bunch of years ago called a vasovagal episode. And uh, I just, um, without getting too graphic, needed to get to the bathroom. And it was occupied, and, and while I was waiting, I dehydrated. I guess it was cramping up, and um, I just kind of blacked out. And I was standing outside the bathroom on an airplane, and uh, the worst of it was that as I blacked out, I hit the back of my head against the beverage cart. And when I came to just seconds later, there was Ron Darling hovering over me right away. And uh, next thing you knew, the uh, head stewardess or flight attendant was there, and um, I was okay. I knew what, what, what was going on, but they insisted that I um, go to Detroit and spend the night. It was the nearest city that we were at on our cross-country flight. They wanted me to spend the night there for observation, which I did against my will, but uh, it was kind of embarrassing under the circumstances because none of those players were all that keen about, you know, sitting for six hours on a plane anyway, much less being diverted. But, you know, I felt well enough when I got off the plane to kind of keep my sense of humor, and I 
turned back to the guys and said, hey, if anybody needs anything in Detroit, let me know, and just kind of trudged <laughs> off the plane. But uh, flew back to New York the next day, and thankfully all is well. All right. But so thanks to David for even remembering. <laughs> One of the questions I wanted to get back to is you have two kind of, for lack of a better way, catchphrases that you use at the end of ball games. When you win, it's put it in the book. When you lose, it's and the ball game is over. What um, led you to use those? Well, put it in the book was kind of a schoolyard thing where I grew up in Bayside, Queens. I might be playing stickball or half-court basketball or whatever, and if we'd won a game, or you know what, even sitting in the upper deck at Shea Stadium with my friends, Mets would win a game, and we'd say something like, that's in the books, or put that one in the books, or, you know, I'm not exclaiming it the way I will on the air now. But the impetus behind my developing that was Marty Brenneman, the Hall of Fame broadcaster of the Cincinnati Reds. The first time I heard, I don't think I'd known that he had been doing it until we were in Cincinnati, and I saw they put it up on the scoreboard, big caricature of Marty, and then his signature phrase when the Reds won a game, this one belongs to the Reds. And I thought that was so, I thought it was perfect. You know, it was so succinct, and it was to the point. It wasn't really contrived in a way that necessarily calls attention to the announcer, it wasn't anything over the top. It was just something that punctuated a win and let you know that the Reds had won a game, and it was Marty's unique and, and personal, personalized way of doing it. And I thought, man, that is so cool. I wish I could come up with something like that. And then, you know, put it in the books kind of popped into my head. It was a little tricky at first finding the right inflection, but eventually I did, and and fans seemed to latch onto it right away. And, and so I, I took that as validation and stayed with it. And speaking of putting it in the books, you wrote a book about Mets history. How did you decide to do that, and what was the most difficult part of the process? I was approached to do it by Triumph uh, Publishing in Chicago. They had done a book of similar um, types with other team play-by-play guys in baseball. I know Pete Van Weeren had done one, and a couple of others had done one, and and um, and they asked me if I'd like to do it. And I said, under certain conditions, there'd be no profanity. There would be nothing salacious. Uh, I'd like it to serve as much as a bit of a primer to young aspiring broadcasters of what the life is like and what the journey is like and, and what you might need to do to, um, you know, sort of stay on track if that's your goal. And at the same time, throw in some history and some anecdotes and uh, make it sound like me. So they paired me up with a great sports writer who's since passed away by the name of Phil Pepe. And I would meet Phil at a diner. He lived in New Jersey. I lived on Long Island. I mean, we met somewhat halfway and would spend sometimes hours in that diner. He turned the tape recorder on and he'd prompt me for stories and prod my memory. And, um, and then he would transcribe it, and he would send me his transcriptions, and I would tweak it because it was very important to me that it sounded like me. You know, it was going to be my story. It had to be told as though someone reading it could hear my voice, and I'm pretty comfortable that that's how it came out. I'd love to do another one someday where I just do all the writing myself, and maybe now that I'm not doing hockey, I'll have time for that somewhere down the road, but now's not the time. And so I ask every broadcaster who comes on this, what is one of your besides for passing out on a plane, uh, broadcast mm-hmm. horror stories 
where it's something that you can look back on now and laugh at, but in the time uh, was just a very difficult situation on the air. Yeah, I wrote about this in the book, and it was, uh, you know, one night of my career where I really thought there was a chance I was going to get fired. It was doing an Islander game. We were in Atlanta uh, right around this time of year, in 2010, I'm going to say it was. And when a visiting team broadcasts or televises a game, specifically televises a game, on the road, you are sometimes at the um, will of and at the mercy of um, the technical crew who is assigned from that city to work that game. They're not people who are normally on your crew. They do some of the ancillary uh, chores and things that are involved with literally getting the game on and off the air. And it was just one of those nights where it, we knew very early on we had some technical issues. The Islanders lost about 10 games in a row. We had gotten in in the middle of the night from a game the night before, and we had a very rough first few minutes on the air, which we all knew about. And now we're in commercial, so I thought. And in my headset, I can hear the producer telling us exactly what the hurdles we were going to be up against were that night and that we just had to suck it up and we were going to have a really rough night. And um, I wasn't in the mood to hear that. <laughs> given where the Islanders have been playing and the way they've been playing, and we were all flat tired. But no excuses, because when I answered him, all I had to do was reach my hand about 10 feet in front of me. There were a button called the talkback, where the only one who would hear what I have to say would be the producer. Instead, I was lazy, and I spoke to him in cue, meaning through a live microphone. But I thought, since we were in commercial, that nobody else would hear it except those in the truck. So when he said to me what was going to be happening that night, I said, oh, yeah. I said, is it spring training yet? And, uh, you know, that, that's, that was only part of it. Now we think we're in commercial, and that commercial is coming to an end. So he goes, five, four, three, two, one, we're on the air. And he goes, uh, well, no, we're not on the air. And uh, as it turned out, we really were, even though we didn't think so. You could hear tape being re-racked. And now they're playing the game, and I think we're not on the air, and they thought we weren't on the air. And I just mumbled into that live mic, well, let me know how this game turns out, not that I'm particularly interested. Because at that point, I wasn't interested in the game. I just wanted to get out of there because I knew it was going to be a brutal night. Well, little did I know that whole episode was on the air, another part of the technical problems we were having. And... uh you know, in the information age we live in now, it didn't take very long for everybody to get wind of that, and that became quite the hullabaloo, and I was called onto the carpet, and I was ready to hand in my playbook. But, you know, thankfully, um, they realized that there were extenuating circumstances, and I guess I built up enough equity over the years so that they wanted to kind of make it go away, which, uh, you know, they did. The whole thing's still out there probably on YouTube, which at least validates the fact that you could hear that tape being re-racked in the background, but it was the most embarrassing thing I've ever done in my career. Who is your favorite broadcaster in each of the four main sports to listen to? Uh, my favorite in all four of the sports from its inception, um, my interest in hockey was generated largely because of Marv Albert. So, uh, you know, it all starts and ends with him. And then as I became a pretty big Knicks fan back in the day when they were great and Marv was their radio voice, 
Well, that takes care of hockey, too. So uh, basketball as well. So Marv was my favorite in two sports. Marty Glickman is the greatest football announcer I've ever heard. Strictly on radio. Marty did the Giants on radio before Marv did. And no one has ever painted the picture better on radio for a football game, in my opinion, than Marty Glickman. Vin Scully is simply in a league of his own when it comes to baseball. The greatest there ever was, can be, or will be. So hopefully that answers the question. All right. That is all I have for today, so we'll let you go. But once again, we're talking to Howie Rose, the voice of the Mets. And, Howie, thanks so much for giving me a little bit of your time. My pleasure. Hope it helped. Good luck to you. This has been the Say the Damn Score podcast. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to the show and follow it on the social media platform of your choice by visiting SayTheDamnScore.com and clicking the big red subscribe button on the top of the page. Also, please reach out to our guests on social media. Tell them thank you and let them know you appreciate them appearing on the podcast. Finally, I always appreciate constructive feedback on the podcast, whether that be through an iTunes review, an email, or social media post. I'm always looking to get better, and your guys' feedback is what helps me direct what to do with this show. So please use the method of your choice to let me know what you think. Anyway, I'm your host, Logan Anderson, and the next time you're on the air, make sure to say the damn score a little bit more.